0: Well this morning we're going to look at the second half of Luke chapter 18 and in these verses we're going to see four different groups that Jesus encounters and four different lessons that he shares with them and and teaches them and ultimately things that uh, we can take from and so it's going to be a very practical section uh, a very applicable section and so hopefully not only do we learn four lessons but hopefully we take those lessons uh, and apply them to our lives. So let's look at the start by looking at the first group that Jesus encounters uh, in the first lesson that he teaches, uh, chapter 18, starting in verse uh, 15. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So the first group of people that Jesus has encountered here is a group of people that have children, and they're bringing those children to Jesus. And as they bring those children to Jesus, Jesus' disciples stop them, try to keep them from bringing children to Jesus, We're told that they brought infants to Jesus. Now, this Greek word translated infant here refers to newborns all the way into uh, a child age. So it's not just babies uh, that's being referred to. Many commentators say that this Greek word was used uh, for children all the way up to the age of nine. So uh, lots of children of different ages being brought to Jesus, and we're told that they brought children to Jesus. We don't know who they are. The assumption is it's most likely parents, grandparents, uh, some relative, maybe a friend. But they, they bring these children to Jesus for a purpose, that Jesus might touch them. It was common in that time for parents to bring their children to a rabbi so that the rabbi might lay his hands on the children and pray a blessing over them. That was very common in the Jewish tradition, common at that time. And so Jesus, becoming the most famous rabbi around, you have these parents and grandparents and relatives, and they have their kids, and they think, we want Jesus to touch our children. We want Jesus to lay hands on them and pray for them and bless them. And so as they come to receive a blessing for their kids, They come, I'm sure, with excitement for their children to encounter Jesus. Something unfortunate takes place. They're rebuked. They're rebuked by the disciples, and the disciples try to stop them from coming and bringing these kids to Jesus. Now, Jesus responds to the disciples, and he says to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. I think there are a few important things that I want us to note with this encounter that we see here with Jesus, with the disciples, with these people who want to bring kids to him. And the first thing I want us to note is that children need to be brought to Jesus. What these parents or grandparents or relatives or friends did by bringing children to Jesus is something that's a great example to us because children do need to be brought to Jesus. Jesus. You know, I've done a lot of ministry with children and and a common uh, attitude that I've uh, encountered over my years of doing ministry with children, uh, the attitude from adults oftentimes was just, you know what, let's just wait. Let them get a little older, wait to bring them to Jesus, wait to, you know, share the gospel. They're just kids. They got plenty of time to come to Jesus or, you know, how much can they really understand? How much can they really grasp about the Bible or how much can they really understand about the gospel? Let's just concentrate on bringing adults to Jesus. And as they get older, then we'll focus on them at another time. Well, Jesus did not agree with that kind of thinking. He told the disciples who were trying to stop people from bringing children to him, hey, don't stop them. Do not forbid them. Let the children come to me. You know, when I started to do children's ministry, one of the things that really surprised me was how much children can understand about spiritual things. I was very surprised of how much they could understand about the Bible, and I was surprised about how easy it was for them to comprehend and understand the gospel. You know, one of my... um, biggest, I guess you would say, in a matter of how many kids experience that I had. I, I taught for two years at a very large church in California, and I did seventh and eighth graders, and it was such a large church that I had 80 seventh and eighth graders in my class. And over that two-year span of time, 20 of those kids accepted the gospel, and most of the kids that were in my class before coming in had already accepted the gospel for the age of seven or eight. And you could go into my class at any point in time and ask the majority of those kids, explain to me what the gospel is, and they would be able to share with you very clearly what the gospel was. Children can grasp it, children can understand it, and children can share it with others. Now, I don't think we should force the gospel on children. I don't think we should try to make them accept Christ. But when they're open and when they're desiring and they're wanting that, We don't say, you know what, you need to wait. Wait till you're a little older. When when a child wants to respond to what God is doing in their heart, we should never try to hinder that. We should never try to stop that. We should always encourage that, and we should always seek to lead them to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, Teach a child before they're seven the way to get to heaven, and even greater their work will thrive if you teach them before they're five. Her point, his point was start investing spiritually in them when they're young and it'll have much longer lasting fruit as they grow older. So as parents or grandparents or relatives or friends, we need to bring children to Jesus. We need to bring them, help them understand the gospel, help them understand wonderful biblical truths. And I believe one of the most practical ways that we can bring children to Jesus is not just to talk to them about that, which is important, but to be a living example of that in front of them. You know, someone asked Albert Schweitzer, who was a very famous theologian and doctor, how children learn, and he responded three ways. By example, by example, and by example. That's the best way children learn, by the example that we set before them. They will follow what you do far more than they will follow what you say. And so if we tell them one thing and do another, as we often say, do as I say, not as I do, it doesn't work, because they're going to do as you do before they do as you say. Those of us who are parents need to understand that studies have clearly shown that we are the most influential example in our children's life. There's a lot of examples, and there's a lot of influences, but the one that is most prominent, the one that is biggest, is a parent's influence over their children's life. And I think a very important question we need to ask ourselves as parents is, what kind of example am I setting for my children? And it doesn't just have to be a parent, maybe a grandparent, or, or you have children in your life that you are a spiritual influence on. Ask yourself the question, what kind of example am I setting for them? It is a good, godly example that is leading them and pointing them to Jesus, or is it a negative example? Is it an example that is drawing them away from God? Now, when I did children's ministry, there was a common misunderstanding that parents had that I want to clarify. The Bible clearly reveals there is a group that is responsible for the spiritual influence of kids, for the spiritual raising of kids, for the spiritual training of kids. And you know what? It's not pastors. It's not children's ministry workers. It's parents. I had parents oftentimes drop their kids off to me as I was doing children's ministry and not come to church themselves. What they're ultimately saying is, you spiritually invest in my children, I'm not going to. But they miss an important thing. Pastors, children's ministry workers, youth workers, we're there to assist, come alongside, help parents fulfill the parent responsibility, which is God has given you as a parent and me as a parent, the responsibility to spiritually invest in children. And we can't pass that responsibility on to someone else. Or at least, we shouldn't. There are many verses in the Bible that point to a parent's responsibility to spiritually influence their children. I just want to share one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5-7, through seven, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, it's a very common verse that many of you probably know but notice how it goes on to say and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart verse 7 you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise up so God says all these commandments that I give to you you personally need to love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength but Then you need to teach those things diligently to your children. When? All times of day. When you rise up, when you go to sleep throughout the day, you should be continually investing in the spiritual well-being and training of children. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Here's where I think the spiritual problem exists the most notice the real challenge of fathers because in the homes the spiritual head the spiritual leader should be biblically the father and sadly fathers are often passing the buck more than anyone else to spiritually invest in children and usually the first person they pass it on to is the mother and then oftentimes both parents pass it on to people in the church But fathers need to say, you know what, I am the spiritual leader, and I need to make sure that I am doing my part in spiritually investing and training my kids. But you know what, there's a wonderful principle in Scripture that is so encouraging as a parent. It says this, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is a wonderful principle that the Bible lays out for parents to be encouraged by. If you train up a child in the way that they should go, when they become older, they're not going to depart from that wonderful truth. But you know what? I found interesting when I started studying this for myself, especially as I became a parent. This Hebrew word, to train up, means to train up by example. This isn't just saying, tell your kids what the Bible says. Tell your kids how they should live. It's saying, be an example before your kids of what they should do and how they should live. So if you want your child to pray, don't just say, hey, pray. Pray with them. Show them. Be an example of prayer. Let them see you regularly pray and come alongside them and help them learn from example. If you want your child to read the Bible, don't just say, you know what, you need to read the Bible every day, but I'm not going to. Read it with them. Show them how. Be an example of that. If you want your children to love others, don't just tell them to love others while you scream and shout at your spouse and treat them in a very unloving way. Demonstrate it by example. So, the principle that this proverb gives us if you train your children by your words and your example, when they get older, they won't depart from it. Now, this is a principle. This isn't a promise that it's always going to happen. But for the most part, that is the reality. If you invest in training your children by example as they're young and they grow up, they'll continue to walk with the Lord. And that should be something that is a strong motivation for. Parents or those of us investing in kids. So the the training method of do as I say, not as I do, is one that doesn't have lasting effect. The one that has lasting effect is when I set the example before you and continue to show you that example, that is the thing that is going to help you in the future to continue in your Christian walk. Now, you know what? All of us as parents recognize we don't do what's right all the time. We don't always set a good example. We don't always do what is biblically right. But you know what? Even when you sin and fail, you can still set a spiritual example for your kids. Because one of the things that they desperately need to understand is God's forgiveness When they sin, they need to understand there needs to be forgiveness. And one of the ways that we can show that is by when we sin in front of them, demonstrate, hey, I need to come to God and ask for forgiveness. And when we sin against them, to come to them and say, please forgive me for what I've done. And setting that example of, yes, even mom and dad fail and we're sinners. And you know what? We need Jesus to forgive us and we need you to forgive us if we're doing this against you. You know, something that really has stuck with me through the years of something that my dad did regularly was he would humble himself when he would sin against us. And he did that from time to time and and said things or did things out of anger. And he would come back and he would pull us aside and he would say, you know what, I was wrong. I need you guys to forgive me. What I did here was not right. Uh, And that was so much more powerful than if he was always perfect and never did anything wrong, to recognize, you know what, here's a man who's willing to humble himself, willing to uh, say, I'm wrong, I need forgiveness, just like I need it from God, I need it from you. And that was a wonderful spiritual example. And so we don't have to be perfect to set an example. We just need to humble ourselves and be willing to seek forgiveness in this. So the, the first thing to note about this encounter is that children need to be brought to Jesus, and really the most effective way to do that is to be an example before them of your faith in Jesus. And I've emphasized the importance for parents doing this, but any of us who have a relationship with children, we should recognize for some of you grandparents or some of you friends or relatives, you might be the only spiritual influence in that child's life. Take that very seriously because every other influence they have, maybe their parents aren't walking with God, maybe other relatives aren't walking with God, at school maybe all their friends aren't walking with God, you might be the only person that they ever see that calls himself a Christian. And they're going to base their whole concept on God, probably on what they see in your life. And that's a pretty serious thought. And so make sure the way in which we're living is a way in which we can help bring them to Jesus. So the first thing to note about this encounter is we need to, bring those to be those that bring children to Jesus. But the second thing is the disciples. We need to be those who don't hinder children from coming to Jesus. And, you know, I've seen this too often as I've ministered to kids. And I don't think the disciples hated kids. I don't think they were just, you know, oh, we just hate kids. Get them away. I'm sure most of them were married. I'm sure many of them had kids of their own and loved them. I don't think this was an issue of get those stinking rotten kids out of here. We don't want them. I really think the mindset of the disciples was a mindset that's common in the church world today that, you know what? Jesus is more uh, busy with dealing with adults because the spirituality of adults is more important. Kind of children are, are secondary. And we kind of see that a lot, if you see in churches where the, the kids are kind of putting a secondary role spiritually. And I think, you know, ultimately the disciples are like, you know what, don't bother Jesus. He's got more important things to do. He's ministering to more important people. Keep the kids away. And Jesus corrects them. Hey guys, you have missed it. Those kids are vital to me. Those kids are important to me. Don't keep them from me. Don't hinder the parents from bringing them to me. I want to to invest in them. I want to have them brought to me. Jesus always had time for children. And you know what? He had strong words for those who hindered children from coming to him. It is better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you cast into the sea than you cause one of these little ones to stumble in their relationship with me. That's pretty strong words. It'd be better that you drowned than to do that. Jesus doesn't not just, he wants us to bring children to him, but he also wants us to take very seriously, not hindering people, especially young ones, from coming to him. Now, it's interesting that Jesus takes all this and he shares an important principle. As all these kids are now surrounding him and he's received them, he says something about receiving the kingdom of God in verse 17. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. As Jesus is surrounded by all these kids, he brings up something very important for the disciples, for the adults, for everyone to comprehend about receiving the kingdom of God. He says, you know what? You need to receive the kingdom of God as a little child does. And children are interesting when it comes to a gift given to them, especially from their parents. They just receive it. They don't think, well, what do I owe you? I got to pay you back. It's just an open, hey, I I want it. Thank you. Give it to me. I like it. Especially if it's ice cream. You know, they don't say, I I don't believe in ice cream. They don't say, what's the catch? They don't say, is it going to poison me? They don't think about, you know, is this going to make me fat or is it going to give me cavities? You know, they don't think about paying you back. They just receive it. Adults, they're not that way. We often think, well, what's the catch? Nothing's for free. You know, what do I have to give you? Well, if you're going to give me a gift, I feel obligated to give you one. I'm sure a lot of you are going to feel that in about a month. You know, Christmas gifts are going to come. Oh, I've got to give this person a gift now. Because we don't like, oftentimes, just to get something for free. We feel like we have to pay them back. Or we have to pay for it. Children aren't like that. And it's important because when we come to the gospel, it's free. God provided everything. He just says, receive it. Oh, no, 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 God, I, I need to at least... You know, barter with you, give you something in return. I need to work for it, right? I mean, surely it just can't be free for me. Well, it is free. We need to just receive it like a child, just accept it in faith and trust our Heavenly Father. So the first group that Jesus encounters are people who brought children to him and the disciples who tried to stop them. And the first lesson that Jesus teaches is bring children to Jesus and don't hinder them And come to Jesus accepting and trusting him like a child. Well, now we're going to see another group that Jesus encounters in a second lesson that he teaches. Chapter 18, verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to them, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. The second person that Jesus encounters is this ruler... And the second lesson that Jesus ultimately is going to give is on hindrances to salvation. We're told a certain ruler comes to Jesus with a question. Now, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, we're told two more things about this ruler, that he was young and that he was rich. And that's why he's referred to oftentimes as the rich, young ruler. And so this man had a lot of things that the world today would love. He had position and he had power because he was a ruler and he also had great possessions because he was rich and he had all of them at a very young age where so many people lived their whole life for this. This man was taking advantage and uh, enjoying it as a younger man and he comes to Jesus with a question. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice this focus is, what work can I do to get eternal life? I'm sure that people have posed that question perhaps to you. What is it that I have to do to be saved? What is it that I have to do to go to heaven? What is it I have to do, thinking of what work shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you probably know the answer. You don't do anything. You believe in what Jesus has done for you. But it's interesting that Jesus so often knew people's Issues, And instead of being very direct with his answers, he took some time to help them discover some of their problems. And this is what Jesus does in his answer to this man. And he starts by saying, why do you call me good? Because notice the guy says, good teacher, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now, something we need to understand is we use the term good today very different from the way in which the Jews of Jesus' day used the term good. When they would say good, this specific word, it was implying a sinlessness. They would never use it of another person. It was only used in reference to God. God is the only true, good, sinless man who does everything perfectly. And so the fact that this guy comes to Jesus and says, good teacher... Was he just really trying to flatter him? Did he really recognize? And Jesus is trying to draw out of him. Do you understand what you're saying when you call me good? Good teacher? Now, Jesus is not trying to deny that he's God. He's not saying, why do you call me good? I'm not good. No, he's asking this guy, think about what you've just said. Do you really know what you're saying when you call me good teacher? Because only God is good. So do you believe that I'm God? Do you recognize who I am? Now, I don't think this rich young ruler really grasped who Jesus was, but he does use this term. And since this man's question was, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with some do answers when really he could just say, well, you don't do anything. You just believe in me. But he says, okay, what shall you do? Well, let me say this. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. This man was a ruler. He was an educated Jew. And all educated Jews at that time at least knew the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus quotes the Ten Commandments, the second half. You see, the first half of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationship with God. The second half is all about our relationship with others. And notice Jesus at the start here, he doesn't even focus on the relationship with God. He says, oh, what shall you do? Well, let me just talk about the relationship with other people. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. And notice this guy's response when Jesus says, don't do those things. He says, well, I've kept all these things from my youth. I couldn't say that. That's a pretty impressive thing. Just in the relationship that we have with others to say, I've never borne false witness. I've never done any of these things. This guy says, you know what? I've kept all that from my youth. Impressive. Now, was he lying? Is that possible? Well, you know what? It's not possible But I don't think he was necessarily lying because I think the way in which he defined what it means to keep these commandments, he could say, well, yeah, the way I define it, I did it. Because up till the time when Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, everyone thinks that, you know what, all God is saying is outwardly you don't have to do this. Have you committed adultery? No, I've never slept with someone who's not my spouse. But what does Jesus then say? If you've lusted for a woman in your heart, you're guilty. Because God says, you know what? It's not just about the outward action. It's also about the heart. I don't just see what you do outwardly. I also see your heart. And so could this man say, outwardly, I've never done these things? Yeah, it's possible that he outwardly didn't do it. Was his heart guilty? For sure it was. But he didn't understand that reality as most Jews of that time didn't. So it's not that he's necessarily lying. I think he just convinced himself, oh, I've done really well in loving my neighbor. But notice Jesus has yet to bring up His love for God. And so Jesus doesn't respond by saying, well, wait a second. Let me correct you on that. you got a heart problem. You actually never have accomplished this because Jesus is going to get to the real heart of the matter. He's like, oh, great. You've kept all those commandments from your youth. Wonderful. One thing you still lack. See that you uh, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come And follow me. Jesus was helping this rich young ruler discover his real issue. Oh, I've kept all these wonderful promises and commands towards people my whole life. Really wonderful. All I want you to do now, just one more thing. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Have any of you been to the dentist? I'm sure most all of you have. The dentist has what I like to call a torture tool. It's that little pick that they have and they jam it into your teeth and they say, does that hurt? And you say, no. Does that hurt? No. Does that Yes, yes, it hurts. And you know, they jam in there and you've got a cavity or something and it hurts really bad. And you know, they're, they're probing in there to find the problem. You know, Jesus does that so often with individuals. He knows their issue, but they don't get it. And so he could have just right away told this man his issue. But first he says, oh, you, you want to try to do something to get to heaven? Well, tell me what the commandments. Have you done these? Oh, yes. Okay, well, here's what you lack. Here's the problem. So all you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. Jesus points this ruler to now the laws before the relationship with others, the law of your relationship with God. And this is where the rich young ruler had a real problem. Because the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And his God was not Christ, was not the true God. His God was riches. And Jesus reveals this to him. you got a real problem. Your real problem is that your God is your riches. So get rid of that. Sell it all. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And then you can truly follow the true God and give up the God that you've made. We're told that he left sorrowful he recognized I have all these riches and I'm not willing to give them away because I live for them that truly is my God and so when Jesus says oh hey have you followed the commandments oh yes okay give up all you have oh that hurts all of a sudden he realizes this is the issue this is my problem this is what I really need to change and sadly he doesn't say in response you're right Riches are my God, and I need to get rid of that out of my life, and I need to come follow you. Instead, he says, Wow, that's not what I wanted to hear. I'm going to leave sad. I'm not going to respond by accepting Christ. The rich young ruler had everything this world desires, power, position, possessions, but in all reality, he really had nothing because he rejected what was most valuable. He rejected what was most important, Jesus Christ. Jesus asked him to give up what he had made his God in order to gain all that Jesus had for him, but he wasn't willing to do it. He left sad instead of leaving saved, as he could have. He left sorrowful when he could have stayed and followed the Savior. He could have gained riches that truly satisfy and fulfill, but instead he held on to those that don't to those that are temporary, to those that ultimately led him away from Christ. I think a great question for us to ponder, especially if you have never accepted Christ, but even if you have, is there something keeping you from following him? Because even for those of us who have accepted him, which this rich run ruler hadn't done yet, is there something in your life? Because sometimes we hold on to things that is hindering us from truly serving and following Jesus the way that we should. And he brings it to us often and says, give it up. Sacrifice it. We say, oh, no, 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 no. I like this. I want this. I want to keep this. I'm not willing to sacrifice this in order to follow you completely, Lord. Or even worse, I'm not willing to sacrifice this like the rich young ruler to even accept you to begin with. To even ask for your forgiveness. I'd rather live for this other God that I've made in my life. And I want to point out here, Jesus is not establishing some kind of principle that says everyone should give all that they have to the poor and now follow him. He's specifically telling this man this thing because he had an issue with trusting in and loving and making riches as God. And Jesus is saying, get rid of all of it. Get rid of those riches and come follow me. Some have said, well, you know what Jesus said, everyone should sell everything that they have and give it to the poor, and so we're doing that. That's not a principle that he's established for everyone. It was a specific thing that he shared with this man because of this man's problem and need. Well, now Jesus is going to bring up an issue that riches can often bring. They don't necessarily bring it, but they often do. Notice what he says in verse 24. And when Jesus saw that he became sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. When Jesus sees the response of this rich young ruler, Hey, sell everything, give it to the poor, come follow me. And he sees this guy is sorrowful and sad and walks away. Jesus then tells the crowd, something very important. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it very clear. Riches can be an obstacle to the kingdom of God. It can be an obstacle for people coming to Jesus to be saved. For some, it's such a huge obstacle. Jesus gives an illustration that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Speaking of a sewing needle, obviously no camel is going to fit through an eye of a needle then for it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying it's impossible. And that's why the disciples respond with, Who then can be saved? I mean, what are you talking about here, Jesus? And notice in that time as well something important. People thought that rich people were rich because of God's blessing, and poor people were poor because of God's lack of blessing which isn't true, but they thought, you know what, if you're rich, it's only because God has blessed you with all these things. So they never equated riches with something that was negative. Riches was something that could hinder. It was always, well, if you're rich, it's because God's blessed you because you must be so spiritual and wonderful. But Jesus is bringing up a principle that actually those riches can be the one thing that keeps you from coming to Jesus Christ because you make it your God, because you live for it. And we see that so often in our society today, that is a society that very much lives for the pleasures and the things of life, and we covet, and we want, and for many people they would rather have those things than Jesus. Who then can be saved? A very good question. And Jesus says, you know what, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Something we need to understand is, salvation period is impossible. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It's not something that is possible with men. Salvation is miraculous. It's something that only God can do. Yes, it's impossible for you to be saved, but with God, all things are possible. And you know what? In the Bible, we've seen many rich people get saved. It's not like, well, rich people can't be saved. They can be, but there's a barrier maybe for them that isn't there for some poor. Because they trust in those riches. They live for those riches oftentimes. And it makes it more difficult as the rich young ruler to say, I'm going to give that up in order to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus, rich tax collector, he got saved. Joseph of Arimathea, very rich, he got saved. Barnabas, rich, he got saved. And the list goes on and on. But you know what? The real thing is there are things that hinder people from salvation. Riches, worldly desires and pleasures and, and things of the world often often are a barrier to people accepting Christ. So the second group that Jesus encounters was a rich young ruler. And the second lesson that Jesus teaches is riches and other worldly things can be hindrances to salvation. But God makes salvation possible to anyone who will receive it. Now we're going to see a third group that Jesus encounters and a third lesson that he teaches. 18, verse 28. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parent or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come. The third group that Jesus encounters are the, the disciples. After hearing this challenge of Jesus to this rich man, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. And seeing his response, he's sad and he walks away. Peter, the outspoken one, on behalf of the disciples, notice he says, oh, oh, Jesus, look over here. We have given up everything to follow you. We're not like that guy. Uh, you just challenged him. He walked away. Remember when you called us? We left it all. Hey, I was fishing. I was fishing with my dad. You said, come follow me. I left my job. I left everything. We, we left it all to follow you. Look at us, Jesus. And Jesus responds with something that's very encouraging for those who have sacrificed to follow him. He says this, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. This is a great encouragement. A great encouragement for those of us who have chosen to sacrifice and to follow Christ. One of the blessings that we always focus on in connection with our belief in Jesus is eternal life, is heaven. And we should because that is an amazing blessing. But sometimes we miss that there also are blessings in this life here. And Jesus brings up both. He says, you know what? For those of you who have sacrificed significant things to follow me, I am going to reward you not only in the life to come, but in this life as well. And notice that one of the big things that, that people who sacrifice to accept Christ, one of the things they lose are parents reject them, brothers and sisters reject them, friends and family reject them. And it happens here in this world or this country, but it happens far more uh, in other countries, especially where Islam and other uh, religions are very prominent, where you come and you accept Christianity, you accept Jesus Christ. All of a sudden now, hey, we don't accept you. You're just uh, excommunicated from our house, from our family. We no longer want you here. And Jesus is saying, you know what? When you sacrifice, whatever it may be, especially a relationship that's so close, like father or brother or spouse or whatever it may be, in order to follow me, in order to accept me, he says, you know what? You will have wonderful blessings from me who shall not receive many times more in this present time. Or in the age, eternal life. One of the more things that Jesus is referring to is the body of Christ. You know, you might lose biological family. You might lose people that, you know, you are related to because you accept Christ and they don't want anything to do with you now. But Jesus says, you know what, you gain the body of Christ. You gain brothers and sisters in Jesus. And I know many believers who have lost parents in the sense of their parents want nothing to do with them anymore because they accepted Christ. But yet now they have brothers and sisters and they have family that are there to love them, to be with them. And that's just one of the more things that Jesus speaks of. There are many other wonderful blessings that come not only in heaven, but also in this life. And I think the principle that we need to understand is that no matter what we have to sacrifice to follow Jesus, it is worth it. Not only for eternity, but also this life as well. Will you shut that door, right? The rich young ruler, he ultimately missed this important truth. It was worth it for him to sacrifice all his riches for Jesus. He didn't think it was. He thought it was worth it to hold on to those riches, to keep those riches, to say, you know what, I want those, not Jesus. And he missed the reality that actually what was most valuable was Jesus. And if he would have sacrificed to follow and serve Jesus, he would have been much better off, not only in eternity, but even in this life now with what the Lord would do in and through him because of it. No matter what we have to sacrifice in this life to follow Jesus, we need to understand it's worth it. And for many people, they don't get it. It's worth it. And it's not just worth it, you know, you need to come and accept him. Yes, that is huge, but even for those of us who have accepted him, we often don't really follow him wholeheartedly with all that we have, and we think, you know what, it's not worth it to give up this in my life, or to give up that in my life, and so I'll follow with this much, but I won't give this, and we need to recognize whatever we have to sacrifice to follow the Lord is worth it. And understand, he's going to reward He's going to bless. He's going to give to you as you sacrifice for him. So the disciples, they want Jesus to know, hey, we left all to follow you, Jesus. We're one of those who sacrificed. Look at what we've done. And now Jesus is going to respond to them with the sacrifice that he's going to give for them and for us. Notice what he says in verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered up to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. This is the third time that Jesus has really plainly said, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be killed, and the third day, I'm going to rise again, and they're clueless. They don't get it, and they're not going to get it until he rises from the dead and it finally clicks. Oh, all those things that he was saying were true. They've just said, look at what we sacrificed for you, Jesus, and Jesus is ultimately saying, I am about to give the ultimate sacrifice of myself for you and for the world and the sins of the world. I think something we need to understand is any sacrifice that we give to follow Jesus is nothing in comparison to the sacrifice that he gave for us. And too often we think this, oh God is going to be my debtor because of all the things that I'm doing for him, all the sacrifices I've done for him. No, no, no. God will never be our debtor. There's nothing that we could ever do to ultimately say, Lord, I've sacrificed more for you than you have for me. And that's just focusing on what Jesus did on the cross, not all the other things that he continues to do for us. We will never sacrifice more for God than what he has sacrificed for us. But the reality of what he has sacrificed for us should cause us to be willing and desiring to say, I want to sacrifice for you. I want to lay down things for you because you ultimately lay down everything for me. You can't outgive God. Everything that you sacrifice for God, he's going to respond as he says, I will bless you. I will give to you. You give to me, I'll give back to you. Don't think that you're going to outgive me. You keep sacrificing for me, I'll keep pouring blessings on you in response to what you do for me. So the third group that Jesus encounters are the disciples. The third lesson that Jesus teaches is no matter what we have to sacrifice in this life to follow Jesus, it's worth it, and he will reward us. Not only in the life to come, but also in the life that we live now. Now we're going to look at the fourth and final group that Jesus encounters and the fourth lesson that he shares. Verse 35, Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, Jesus asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. And when they saw it, Gave praise to God. The fourth person that Jesus encounters here is a blind man. And this crowd is coming near this blind man. He's sitting there begging and he hears what the commotion and he says, What's going on? And people say, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And notice his response when he hears that Jesus is passing by. He cries out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know what? As he's crying out, he's warned. That he should be quiet kind of like the disciples when people brought children to jesus you know just get out of here jesus son of david have mercy on me just be quiet blind man he's passing by he's got better things you know quit, quit crying out to him look at this crowd that's around him and he could have just been quiet he could have listened to the people just saying you know what jesus isn't gonna have mercy on you be quiet quit shouting that out instead of being quiet he cries out even louder Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus hears him. Jesus stops. And Jesus says, Bring him to me. And then he asks a silly question in some regards What is it you want me to do? I think anyone there could have said, "Uh, He wants to see. (laughs) He's blind. I think that's what he wants. But you know what? Jesus always wants us to tell him our need. What do you want me to do for you? I know what your need is even better than you. But I want you to ask. I want you to tell me. And this blind man says, I want to receive my sight. And so Jesus immediately heals him. He receives his sight, and everyone there starts glorifying God for what was done. But I think it's interesting. Jesus points out something. Your faith has made you well. We see this so often through Jesus' encounters with people. He loves it when people believe he can do the impossible for them. Because so often we don't. So often we think this is too big for God. This is too big for him to handle. Obviously, blindness being one of those things. And so this guy actually believing that Jesus could heal his blindness, Jesus is like, I'm so blessed. Your faith in me that I could do that for you has made you well. Ultimately, you were willing to come to me. You were willing to believe in me. You were willing to ask of me. And I am willing to respond to you by doing the miraculous in your life. This is such a good encouragement for us, a great example for us, because ultimately Jesus wants us to believe he can take care of any circumstance in our life. He can do the miraculous in our life, and we face things that are are beyond our ability, are beyond what we could do, are beyond anything that we could figure out of how could this work out, and Jesus says, just trust me, come to me, place your, your faith in me, that I can do the impossible for you, that I can take care of that situation, or that illness, or that circumstance but you know what there are those like people in the crowd who tell you just be quiet quit talking to Jesus the enemy loves to say you know what don't don't bring those requests to him he's not going to have mercy on you he doesn't care about you he doesn't care about this circumstance he doesn't care about this situation he's not going to help you in this just be quiet quit asking him and we hear that voice and we hear those things and sometimes we believe it and we stop When we should be like this man to say, you know, I'm going to cry out even louder. Jesus, have mercy on me. Help me. I believe that you can help me in my circumstance, in my situation right now. And watch him respond as he did to this man and come and meet the needs that we have, even if they're impossible. Because you know what? Nothing's impossible for God. The fourth group or person that Jesus encounters is this blind man. And the fourth lesson that Jesus teaches is that when we are willing to put our faith and trust in him, he will do miraculous things in our life. So Jesus encounters four groups, and he teaches four great lessons. And as I started with, I don't want us just to walk away with, oh, these are great lessons to understand intellectually, but more importantly, that we would apply them to our life. Lesson number one, we need to bring children to Jesus, not hinder them, and come to Jesus accepting and trusting him like a child. Let's apply that. The children that are in our life, let's be those that are examples to them, bringing them, teaching them to pray, teaching them to read the Bible, teaching them of what it is to follow Jesus, being an example to them. Lesson number two, riches and other worldly things can be hindrances to salvation, but God makes salvation possible to anyone who will receive it. Whatever hindrance is in your life, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, do not let that keep you from coming to him. Salvation is there for you if you will receive it. Number three, no matter what we have to sacrifice in this life to follow Jesus, it is worth it, and he will reward us. Let's believe that. Let's go this week, and if there are things in your life that you're saying, you know what, I've been holding on to, I haven't been willing to give it up to Christ, to say, you know what, I believe that it's worth it. I believe giving this up to you to follow you is worth it, and here it is. Take it. It's yours. Will we actually do that? Will we actually put that into practice and watch how he responds? And then fourthly, are we willing to put our faith and trust in Jesus that he will actually do miracles in our life? That he will do what seems to be impossible for us. Are we willing to put that into practice this week and trust him and have faith in him and believe in him when it doesn't seem like we have any concept of how he could ever come through in the circumstances that we're in? Just like this blind man, I'm sure didn't know, but he believed. You know, in just a little bit, we're going to have a Thanksgiving meal, celebrate Thanksgiving together in the other room, and I'm looking forward to that. But I think a great way to start And I just want to close doing this. It's just, you know what, a time to pray aloud if you want to the Lord and just express some of the things that you're thankful for. And I'm going to close it, and if you don't want to pray aloud, then that's fine. You can just pray quietly to him, but it's just great when you get to hear other people and what they're thankful for, and we can just agree with that. But let's just take some time just to come before the Lord, express our thankfulness to him for whatever it is that's on your heart that you're thankful to God for. And then I'll close this, and then I'll let you know how we're going to uh, have our time of food and everything. But uh, if you desire to do that, I would just encourage you to, and, and I'll close this in prayer. So let's just take a few moments to do that.